the speakers, we can only hear each other right now, right? Right now, it's yeah. just everybody was, listening to us. If they heard us now, it would be <laughs> bad. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it would be bad. <laughs> no, can you hear fine. us? Yeah. No, Nobody can hear us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's oh gonna just go live now. It's fine. He's gonna give us two. He's you know what we should do? We just we should we should start this and pretend like we think we're still off mic. Yeah. We should. <laughs> like, hey, oh, oh, hey, oh, oh, check, oh check there's, there's that, an audience check here. Check out the guy in the front row. What is he doing? Is he, is he sleeping? Why, hello, inbound. Good to see you. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. Put it together. Let's get some energy. Yeah. Um, so my name is Chris Savage. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Wissia. Uh, we're a video marketing platform, and we're excited to be recording an episode of Talking Too Loud today with all of you. So Talking Too Loud is a show that's based on the idea <laughs> that when I get excited, I can't control the volume of my voice. I've been told that since I was a child. Uh, my kids also, extremely loud when they're excited. So we're going to talk about the things that get us excited up here today. We have a great show planned for you, and we are going to get started right now. Yeah, we are. You ready, Sylvie? I think I'm ready. My, my feet can't touch the floor here, but I, I like it. No, it's a good look. Feel comfortable. Yeah, you look comfortable. Yeah. Um, so welcome to Talking to That with Chris Savage. I'm your host. <laughs> I'm joined, as always, by the lovely Sylvie Lubau, podcast producer extraordinaire. It's me. Um, and we have some amazing guests. We have Robert Chetwani, who's the CMO of Atlassian, and Hannah Shane, who's the VP of Marketing at Smartbug. Um, and we're going to be talking today about how to get the attention of audiences in a world that's very crowded uh, when it's hard to stand out. But first, we always start the show by hearing about what has each other talking too loud. So, Sylvie, what has you talking too so loud? So much these days. So much. Um, I was recently in Maine. This one's a little bit out there, even for me. Okay, congratulations. Recently That's in great. Maine, and uh, a friend of mine has become a free swimmer. So we'll just go out into like open bodies of water, oceans, lakes. And I decided I'm going to write my first murder mystery based on a free swim in a lake. Okay, go okay. with me. Okay. Join me on this journey. A free swim. Free so, swim on a lake where she goes down to the bottom because she really does this. Oh, she, she dives deep. Things. She dives deep. Yeah, okay. she finds things. She found okay. like a fishing rod. She found like cans. So you're talking like scuba diving with no air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got and, it. And uh, this water sounds murky. Like it is murky. That adds, that adds to the mystery though. Got it. You know? <laughs> but uh, as she was telling me about this, I was like, this would be a great murder mystery novel. So that's my, that's my long-term vision. That's what's got you talking too that's loud. That's what's got me talking too loud. Uh, I think this book needs to be a movie. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Or Man. a podcast. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Savage, what has got you talking too what's loud? What's got me talking too loud? Well, I live in a house that's about a hundred years old, has those old windows in it that have ropes on them. And the other day I was having a really productive uh, Saturday morning. You know, I got up, I was hanging some art on the walls, I was playing with my kids. And I was just like, I'm in a mood. I'm like, I'm going to tidy up. Like, this is, this is my plan. Oh. I'm just going to clean this house. I'm going to be so productive by 8 a.m. Well, <laughs> I went to one of those old windows, and I saw the storm window behind it was partially open. And if you know, it's, you don't have as good insulation in a situation like that, right? Interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm checking things off my list. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close that window. Not a big deal. I unlock the, the window like this. There's no ropes in the back window. So the back window drops, oh, no. hits this finger, blood starts shooting out. No. It was horrible. It was like a 10 out of 10 on the pain scale. I was running around my house trying to get help. <laughs> and I ended up getting my six-year-olds to go find my wife. I'm fine. Don't worry, everyone. <laughs> but I am talking to a lot about those old windows. They're not good from an insulation standpoint. Okay. Yep. And you can get injured. 
Um, so I bet you didn't expect to be hearing about that right now, but I you know mean, we're keeping it real. I wish people could see this wound up close. It's it's not that bad. we can see the blood yeah. cluster from here. Wound. It's a significant. <laughs> looks like it's healing though. So yeah, good, I'm doing good great. To see you're Don't on worry the about me. I'm doing great. <laughs> um, okay. So Hannah, you're the VP of Marketing at Smartbug. I know you've got a lot going on in your life right now. What's got you talking so loud? Uh, what got me talking loud right now? I'm moving to Paris. So I packed up my oh. whole life, and straight from here, I'm off to Paris. I have uh, never left the state of Colorado before. So third generation family and we born and raised there. I still say that my roots are in Colorado and I'm just really excited to start this new chapter of my life. And inbound is that kind of trajectory point of where I'm kicking things off. You're leaving for Paris from inbound. New York. So I'm going to okay. go a train from Boston, New York. Very nice impressive. Weekend. Congratulations. Then, thank you. Big life change. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like packed. Like this is your I home. I fit it all packed. into four suitcases. Well, I, my home is with my sister. I had to say goodbye to my dog. I, it, was, it was talking too loud, crying too loud. <laughs> a, a lot of emotions happened over the last week, but we're good. And why the move? <sighs> I've been telling everybody that it's, <laughs> why, that why is a bigger question. Um, but no, it's a good, it's a good time in my life. I'm at a point where there's a lot of um, kind of personal things that had changed over the last year that now just feels like it's good to be. Emily in Paris. This will be Hannah in Paris. And Hell we'll just yeah. go for that. Um, but also, I work for a great company that supports us with the fully remote lifestyle. And it's not just a support, but we celebrate. And we try to encourage people to go integrate their life with the, the life they want to live and make sure that they have a career that kind of supports that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Robert? What's got you talking too loud? Well, you know, top of mind for me right now is uh, my daughter's applying to colleges. She's a senior in high school, and uh, I could use a therapist. So if anybody has, <laughs> if anybody has gone through right that now. experience as a parent, uh, but, but separate from that, look, uh, you know, we're living in a, in a crazy time. And sometimes I just want to say to folks, you know, we're a software company. Uh, I get a chance to speak to lots of executives, leaders at other companies going through transformation. And... It's really hard to predict the future. And you know, sometimes I, I want to say to folks, listen, I don't know what's going on. And I don't think you know what's going on either. So let's just put that out on the table, that we are operating in an environment where we really have to lean on our adaptability and lean on our teams, uh, show up with lots of empathy, and navigate all this stuff together. And oftentimes, you know, when I have that type of dialogue with a leader, it really opens up a lot of vulnerability and you realize that as much as we believe others know exactly the direction the world is going right now, uh, we don't. And if you look at the last few years, I think it's quite a miracle that all of us are physically together. You know, for those totally. who are going to be listening to this podcast, uh, we're, we're in front of thousands of people here in Boston and uh, what a privilege to be able to do this. But it was hard to predict exactly where the world would be just a couple years ago and even last year. And so operating in an environment like this, especially for those of us building a company or building an organization, um, how do we think about this combination of uh, stability and agility? And how do we think about both of those two things at the same time? And what does that mean for us as we build forward? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I've been thinking about it in a similar way, which is just like, we're at this moment of extreme variability and there's no obvious like one path. Yeah. Um, it's a little scary. Um, but also creates opportunity, right? Like it's like when others are fearful, you want to be greedy if possible. Yeah. And so it's like, how do you use this moment to kind of step up and 
and do things that other people aren't doing, differentiate yourselves, which actually gets us to our topic. Um, so, I loved that transition. <laughs> oh, thanks, that. thanks, Sylvie. So we're, we're talking about like, I think one thing that is happening is there's an enormous amount of content. There's enormous amount of different things trying to draw the attention of our customers. So it's, it can be hard to reach your own customers. It can be hard to re reach prospects. And it does seem like that's also, of course, correlated with the fact that it's easier than ever to make content. Mm -hmm. You know, I think COVID has shown us this. We've seen a huge increase in podcasts, people making videos at home, all this kind of stuff. The bar has been leveled. The game has changed. And so in a world where there's unlimited content, how do you build a real connection with an audience? Like, how do you stand out? What do you do differently? Robert, if you want to start. Sure. Um, look, I come from a background in consumer marketing. In the last uh, six years, I've worked for an enterprise software company. And what I realized at the end of the day, regardless of the industry you're in, the business you're in, uh, we're talking to people, right? And so what we found is that the more natural language we use, the more authentic communication approach we use, uh, and the more centered we are on the champions of our brand and empowering them, the more effective our marketing tends to be. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Atlassian is a software company. Up until recently, we were generating more traffic on the Atlassian community each year than we were on Atlassian.com, our main front door. Hmm. And we were talking about tens of millions of visitors each year. And so how does that happen? How does a community attract more traffic than our primary commercial destination yeah. to buy our products? And over the years, what we realized is cultivating a community of champions, those individuals who, whose careers are built on our products or who believe in what we believe, um, and giving them tools and empowering them to be ambassadors of our brand, to serve as sort of uh, really the, the champions of what we stand for has been really, really powerful. And there's a multiplier effect. And so to be specific, we have over 400 community groups in cities throughout the world with local organizers who create meetups and we send them a meeting or an event in a box and they use that to convene other champions in their community and get together on topics related to Atlassian products, related to building a career, uh, getting certified. Um, and so we found that to be really, really powerful to understand who your champions are, embrace them and integrate them into our marketing so that they can actually serve as amplifiers. How do you measure that? We must be in a room full of marketers. <laughs> well, I gotta uh, ask the question. Yeah, so look, you, know, you can't always apply the same set of metrics across every channel. And, and so what we've done with our community is first and foremost look at um, active engagement. And so how much repeat activity, content contribution, in-person meetings, like how much activity is actually happening? How much engagement do we have? We have a balanced scorecard with you know, six or eight of our top measures and we keep a close eye on that. Uh, and then we get more quantitative. So we look at the correlation between active community engagement and our churn rate, or rather our retention rate. And what we notice is a two to four X greater retention over five years with those who uh, participate in our community. Causal, correlated, who cares? Who cares? Right? Take what it. We, what we show is that those <laughs> metrics really demonstrate that investing in those champions yeah. really, really creates value. And Hannah, how do you think about standing out in a world that has so much competition? Well, I'm so inspired by your story of um, building the community because we're right at the beginning stages of doing that, actually, at SmartBug. Um, and with our podcast, we are building a website. We, um, it'll launch next week, and it's intelligentinbound.com. And there's this fear of trying to do everything. We're trying to do the white papers and the ebooks and the podcasts and the videos, and it, it feels sporadic at times. Um, and so an exercise I'm going through right now is to really create that kind of 
through line of what's the storyline that is going to tie those pieces together. And it's easy to get lost in the, the mix of it because you just want to do all of it. You want to create the really great campaigns that your conferences and then that feels distant from the different product lines or service lines that you have and so I would say kind of getting back to organized storylines and really being thoughtful about the challenges that you're either helping solve or what it is that people are out there looking for and that's all rooted in SEO marketing it's a good SEO strategy obviously yeah and then the other piece too is as cheesy as it sounds is just to be more authentic so the less like jargon you can be throwing into your content and the more simplified the message is and what you guys are doing with this podcast is a really good example. We wanted to have more of an authentic conversation and just see where it takes us. And that's the type of content people crave. They're not looking for anything that feels overprepared or too, too washed down with corporate words. Yeah. I always encourage my team to find opportunities to, to see something we're doing and then do the exact opposite, like flip it. That's and cool. see what happens. Ah. So a few years ago, we hired um, <laughs> the uh, editor-in-chief of Men's Health to join Atlassian. And Ooh, I got, I got a number, yeah. a number of very strange <laughs> looks. Um, I was like, Robert, are you trying to get on some covers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but that was the start of an experiment, which was to build a syndicated content experience we call Work Life. And we wanted to uh, engage in content and build content around uh, high-performance teamwork. Atlassian's a software company that drives collaboration. We didn't want to mention or talk about any of our products, but really stimulate this topic of teamwork. And I called it the experimentation phase. It worked. And we were able to build an audience of individuals who were not customers. And I think that incrementality of the investments you make is really important. We moved it to what I call the scaling phase. And sort of the phase we're in right now where we're developing lots and lots of content, building on that success. And eventually, we'll have to get to the optimization phase. But for almost every channel that we try or every bet that we make, thinking about breaking it down into these phases and then balancing our spend and our people resources against all the different levers that we try to pull to drive scale and growth is, is important. And what we found is work life is now one of the most successful investments that we've made as, a, as an organization to drive engagement and understanding and visibility of our brand. Um, and it is largely because we, we didn't take a traditional approach to a lot of our peer companies in building a content engine. It's very consumer-centric. It's very human, very empathetic. Um, and, you know, didn't, no, no guarantee that it was going to work. Uh, but we found we really had to approach the problem in a different way. That's awesome. And that mirrors some of our experience. We have this show, Talking to We have a, a series that came out last year called Show Business, which is like a 20-video series on everything it takes to go from, like, conception to making a show to producing it. And we've often seen that when we launch this stuff, it starts like qualitative. We get qualitative feedback in the first phases. Yep. And then over time, it gets quantitative. And you get to see, oh, here are the accounts that came that their first touch was watching this, their first touch was listening to this. And it's been interesting to see that transition and also really just recognize that if you're making content like this consistently and you treat it as a product, yep. that's where a lot of the magic is. It's like, okay, I didn't make this once and then left it on the floor. Like I made it and I promoted it and I advertised it and I let people experience it and try it. And then just like a product, I iterated on it and improved it the next time and the next time and the next time. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's something we've seen that's like really worked. Um, but at the first moment, it's like, well, does this work? Are people into it or not? Do, yeah. do we get more customers or not? Like we don't expect to see that the first blush anymore. But I think it, it's given us freedom to try more things. Well, I like what you said, because if you, if you view your content assets and your channels as a product, 
you know, you take that forward and say, well, what does that mean? Well, you need a product manager, right? You need a driver of an owner or an owner. Sylvie's our producer. There you go. Manager, there you go. <laughs> who, who will be the uh, choreographer of all the things that need to happen to make that successful. Uh, you'd have a roadmap, yep. right? You'd have an investment plan and you'd probably have an experimentation and testing plan. And that really reframes and changes, I think, a lot of how we think about and build the content assets or the capabilities that we have as marketers. Yeah. Uh, treating things like a product and then giving it sort of the the requisite support and resources to make it successful. Yeah, one thing we've done that's worth stealing is um, we've started content sometimes gated or like you have to see it in person. And then we do that for a while and it's on our site where anyone can watch it. And then we take clips from it and we put it onto the other social platforms that eventually release the full version onto the other platforms. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to model and copy the kind of like movie hitting a theater. Yeah, but well, what I like about that is like a product, it, it all has a life cycle. Yes, exactly. And a launch plan behind it too. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's go to what what should companies start doing today to kind of differentiate if the if you think that you see something that people aren't doing and what do you think they should stop doing? Well, we were just talking about gated content. Now I'm like, let's follow uh, Savage's model. <laughs> <laughs> just keep going down that route. I don't know. I um, so backing up a little bit. I my career got started at also a software company that was in the project management collaboration space and we looked up to Atlassian and Jira quite a bit. And I was at Rally Software and that's where I got my tech background and I was always told figure out how to build a brand that developers love. And just like marketing to marketers, which is the job I do now, brand is what's pulling people in. And I think being able to create an authentic brand that people come to trust and they come to learn from is going to be where you should start. And so if you stay focused on what it is that you want to be known for, but then also dig deep into how people are already finding you. And if there's some sort of misalignment, fix that first. Yeah, similar. I mean, you know, we have, I think for any business and as marketers and growth leaders, what are your design principles? You know, and they may be different for every business. What works for, we're, Chris, we were talking about this earlier, what, what works for one business may not work yeah. for another. Um, write those down, share them, test them, push them, you know, and for Atlassian, some of those principles are first and foremost, um, just like Hannah, you said, remove the friction, right? So how much information and how much value can we create for a potential customer before they tell us anything about themselves? And over time at Atlassian, uh, we've had folks come into the organization and, and throw up gates you know, where we ask for an email address, where we ask for information. And that sort of crept into the business. And one of our um, demand gen leaders discovered this. And we started to audit um, all the places where we've inadvertently done this. And where we, you've inadvertently had gates? Yeah, or yeah, folks yeah, that put yeah, things up because yeah. it, that's what marketers do often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we actually created a new project called the, the Great Ungating to reverse all of that, <laughs> wow. right? I like it. And, and it, it, it ruffled a lot of feathers because all of a sudden, um, you know, the leads going to the sales teams weren't as qualified or we dropped a lot of the volume. But um, removing that friction, uh, publishing our pricing, having standard prices for all customers to create a sense of parity and fairness, um, we're always looking for ways to remove as much of that friction as possible. And then, you know, the second principle is really be patient to be greedy which is make it really easy for customers to try and buy the first product from Atlassian. And then over time, once they create value, then decide when's the right time to cross sell them into the rest of the portfolio. Don't pull that in too early. Let their behavior actually drive the decisions behind when we think about growing that customer. And then lastly, I mentioned earlier, but then empower our champions. Really you know, find those individuals who we know are transforming their companies or their organizations by bringing our technology and products in there 
and do everything we can to help make them successful. Can you go deeper just a little bit like on the great ungating in terms of, I'm sure lots of us have instincts like this. Like we're sitting there and we're like, it's obvious, just don't gate this content. But like, how do you actually get people ready for the scale? At last is a pretty big company. How do you get people comfortable with that, taking that type of risk? You know, I think we, we benefited from uh, a lot of the thinking that Mike and Scott, our co-founders had when they started the company 20 years ago, which is they were uh, two engineers out of school and uh, didn't have a sales background and said, well, what's, and didn't have a sales team, what's the best way for us to sell these products? Which is like, well, let's just put them online and ask for a credit card and you can buy them. Um, and our model lent itself well to that, sort of the land and, ex and expand business model because uh, teams could make the decisions on bringing our products into their organizations and then we would grow from there. So in many ways, it's just going back to the roots of where the company started. But it goes back to this design principle, which is create a lot of value by removing friction. And I think it works particularly well for uh, volume-based businesses where we want to make lots of small changes continuously um, to start that flywheel activity, right? And, and I talked a little bit about this in a, in a different session, which is, what's a flywheel? It's, it's the idea of kind of a mechanical flywheel where you are removing friction, building momentum, and once you start to stimulate that momentum, apply force, right? And force could be paid marketing channels, SEO, driving demand gen, but those two things working together. And what I'm finding is that businesses built on a flywheel model are now thinking about how do we combine that with enterprise growth. And a lot of companies who are really, really good at enterprise sales or high touch sales uh, are now having to think about how do they build their flywheel. And so it's no longer an either or, but how do we think about these two things working together? What were you ungating exactly though? Uh, a lot of, you know, some of it's just research papers, white papers, uh, analyst reports, access to uh, financial models to help customers make better decisions around how our products can create value for their organizations and, and generate ROI. Um, and these are often things that we've invested a tremendous amount of money in, into, sometimes first party research reports on high performing teams that we commissioned. And so there's a tendency to want to maximize the ROI on that by knowing who's reading it, who's consuming it. But what we found is when we flip the model and try to create as much value for a potential customer as possible, it does a few things. One, it tends to generate a disproportionately high amount of trust in the brand. Uh, secondly, if the content is good, the customer is likely to re-engage with us. If the content's not great, well, that's on us, not on the customer, right? And third, when it is time to actually transact with them, what we find is they tend to give us more information than we would have even asked them for. Mm -hmm. And so it takes vulnerability. You have to take a leap, uh, but we found it to be really powerful. I asked because we, we had to do the same thing, but it was big on gating. I think there's this like, massive thread. It was probably started by somebody at Wistia, actually, a conversation on LinkedIn <laughs> that my CEO caught wind of, and then she forwards it to me. She's like, everything needs to be ungated. <laughs> I was like, uh, most of our content is ungated. And uh, we have some strategic gates, but um, anytime we're doing a live event, I just want to make sure I can get you the registration page so you know where to go. So give me your email address so we can get you registered for that. And then once it's post-production, we flip that into content that's ungated. The white papers or the research, that makes a ton of sense. And you could do a lot with that. Absolutely. You could do a really awesome landing page that's instead of a boring research paper, and you, but you have really good stats in there, make it like this powerful, punchy, infographic-style page that the metrics and 
the skim readers, they can glance at it, but then the search engines can read it and see all the content. Yeah, absolutely. We have something called the Atlassian Team Playbook, which is a set of uh, playbooks for high-performing teamwork. And it's all of that information is out there. We don't ask for any information from a customer. You can download templates, PDFs. And what we found is oftentimes uh, that gets syndicated, that gets picked up and propagated in ways that we could not have predicted if we, if we restricted access to that content. And so I think, Hannah, to your earlier point, look, as marketers, we apply judgment every day, right? And where do we apply this judgment? Where do we test? Where do we experiment? And then where are some areas where you just say, nope, doesn't matter. Like, I'm going to make sure that this information is available to as many people as possible regardless. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear what you guys think. So like when I think about companies or brands that I love instantly, like I can name five off the top of my head, but when I try to think about the why, I feel like it's almost instinctual. It's hard for me to distill it. But do you think there's like a core common denominator that like whether you're making software or you're a creative agency, like every company should be doing this to get people to love them and connect with them? Yeah, I mean, it's a very personal thing, right? And, and this is why the lines between enterprise marketing and consumer marketing, I think, have, are blurring faster than ever before, but, but that's exactly how it should be because ultimately, as marketers, we're responsible for two things. One, um, driving high performance, high, highly valued growth and revenue for our, our organizations. And secondly, uh, building an emotional connection with our existing customers and, and potential customers. And you can think of your top five favorite or your top favorite uh, consumer brands pretty quickly. Um, but I would say that the emotional connection that a lot of enterprise buyers have, the stakes are even higher. Oftentimes we see that they are making decisions to bring products into their organization or into their teams and they're betting their career, at least their reputation, on that decision. And so as a brand, it's your responsibility to serve that prospect or that customer in ways that help to make them successful. And doing that well, like, you know, there's no substitute for a great product. You can't market your way around that. So that's step one. Step two is to empower them with um, all, everything they need to be a champion. And then I think step three is really to help guide them to be successful through certification, through training, education, case studies, demonstrating to them how others like them have been successful. And I find that doing those things well the outcome of that is a deeper emotional connection with a customer. I was just thinking about, um, I feel like there is that emotional connection. And even back in school, we would talk about creating nostalgia campaigns or anything that really does drive like that feeling of like, how do you feel when you're thinking about the brand? And one of the feelings that we try to drive out of SmartBug's brand is that you feel smarter after you've worked with SmartBug. And it's either you worked for SmartBug and part of our kind of internal personas and, and what we talk about of who do we employ and who are our rock stars at our company. I, we always talk about we genuinely feel smarter because we're surrounded by smarter marketers. And yeah. I'm thrilled to be at an organization yeah. where I'm, I'm not the only one that knows about HubSpot, finally. And everybody at <laughs> <laughs> the company what, what, is, what I love about what you said, that, that, that clarity is really powerful. And it's also, it's a unifier, right? Yeah. So everybody across your team, everybody across your organization, Whatever you're doing, whether it's communicating, building content, engaging customers, your sales org, that's a very powerful North Star. Yeah. And it's different for every company, but what I love about that example is it's simple, it's easy to understand, and it really helps to unify your teams internally around that, around that purpose. 
I don't think I've ever actually ex explored that at SmartBugs. So you guys promised that we'd work through things. Yeah, that's right. We're Here we are. Real time. Real time. Yeah. We'll take notes. <laughs> I think there's, there's something in there too that you talked about uh, that I'm hearing both of you. You're talking about like, you know, the employee experience, the experience of the clients and like how important that is. And you're also talking about like what it means in someone's career. Yeah. And I feel like we went through this massive shift to everything being a subscription. Mm. And what that means is that when you're buying a product, like you're not just buying the product today, you're buying the future updates, you're buying the changes right. and you're buying an ecosystem and a platform. And that means that the decision, it might be inexpensive, the thing that you're first using, but often I think the decision is bigger than we realize, right? Like if you start using a product, you spend $50 a month, but you're still using that product two years later and you've expanded, you're spending $500 a month, you're spending thousands of dollars a month, you're running part of your function on that product or you're working with an agency and it's grown and scaled and you're doing all this stuff you can't do internally, it's a big decision. And it, that will be one of the things that people look back on in yeah. terms of like your career growth. Yeah. And did you actually grow? And I, I think it, thinking about it that way, and, also, and we all know we're all people. We're just trying to market to people. We're trying to differentiate and make them feel something. But I think a lot of like, if this is about your career growth and your company growth, that's a big deal. It is. Yeah. And that's why I said, I think it's in many cases as an individual consumer, I'm making an individual decision for me or my family. But when you're making a decision to, for us, purchase software, right? Transform your company. Um, it could be a decision that's in the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or also totally. millions of dollars. And I think this gets to understanding as, as growth leaders, um, who's involved in the decision journey. And, you know, for SaaS software, when we look at our data, on average, there's about six decision makers. Um, and the value proposition, the messaging, and the positioning for each of those uh, is slightly different. And so we have a protocol of you know, building a very clear message house, very clear positioning, but then understanding each of those personas and uh, the what and the why behind what would influence their decision. But when you strip it all away, there's somebody there who's most likely going to be that advocate and that champion. That's the most important person to understand. Let's, let's go a little deeper here, which is, how do you know what a customer wants, right? Like, I for, love this question. Yeah, how do, let's start, <laughs> and let's start with you, Hannah. Like, how do you know, how do you know what your client's customer, or client's client, like, how do you actually get to what they want? Well, I think you have to listen to them. So there's the obvious one of just, you, you get to know them, you look at the data, you understand that. The reason I jumped in and was like, I love this one, is because I've <laughs> been on a talk track lately of talking about intent data. And so... There's also the marketers have all this data as available to us and we can be pretty sophisticated in how we're learning what people want and we can use that to our advantage to be very tailored and personalized with the content that we want to use. And um, I have been kind of just digging into how can we leverage that for ABM plays and for our content marketing and from driving those just what I had said before of like keeping all that sporadic content you're creating into commonalities and to throughputs of what your themes are that you're going to be doing for the rest of the year. And now we have the data to tell us, are people doing that research online? Are they, are they showing intent? Are they surging in this intent? And you can map it back to buyer personas and buy the buying committee to know, I, I don't care if the whole company's doing intent or surging on that topic. Is that six people in my buying committee? Are they the ones that are doing it? And precisely who? And it, as a B2B marketer, it, it kind of puts us in the advantage of um, being able to run campaigns. And it's the same way when you feel like Alexa's listening to you at home and then the next day you're like, well, I was just talking at a girl's night about uh, our new high heels we wanted to get and then I see those the ad for it online. 
All right. How do they do that? But you're Alexa. I, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. That, that that example is interesting, right? Take let's take Amazon, amongst probably one of the most customer obsessed companies that that most of us know. Um, there's a great book written by Colin Breyer uh, called Working Backwards, and if you haven't read it, it's completely worth a read. It's an inside peek into how Amazon thinks about this, but starts by talk to customers, right? Really ask them what they want. And so much of the innovation in that company, um, 80% 80, 80 or more of it just comes from what customers say that they're missing. And just pausing and dialing in and, and understanding that is, I think, step one for customers you want or don't have. And then, you know, for the customers that you already have, like you said, Hannah, we are living in an era of incredible, sort of the Cambrian explosion of data. And, uh, at Atlassian, you know, we value that first-party data incredibly like, highly. Looking at product behavior and understanding what are the signals that would tell us what the next best product or the next best experience would be uh, is something that's very difficult to do but very powerful. And connecting that product usage behavior then um, to our owned channel marketing uh, messaging and, and connecting that data internally, often in companies that's very siloed. But investing and actually connecting that data is something that um, has created a lot of value for Atlassian. And even we're still trying to figure that out. Well, yeah. What do you do if you, if you enter into an organization, let's say it's 500 people, big enough that it seems intimidating. Yeah. Um, and you're coming in, they've had a hit, things are working, but like they don't have the systems in place to understand the customer. Yeah. Well, in your example, I think you said something interesting, which is there's growth happening. And this is one of the traps, which is growth can hide a lot of problems. Oftentimes, yes. uh, all of us hopefully have been in growth organizations at some point, and we intrinsically know that, okay, there's, a, there's powers that be, there's forces at work that's helping a company or an organization or a particular product do really, really well. Uh, but I can assure you in most of those instances, there's something underneath that that's not working. Uh, that's a difficult conversation to have. Nobody wants to pay attention to that because uh, it's easier not to. What I did coming into Atlassian and, and what, what even my prior company at eBay, um, hopefully you have somebody in an analytics organization or somebody who's data centric who will know exactly how to stitch more data together to try to get to some form of a segmentation model. And what I found is when you can start to unify marketing data with product usage behavior data or frankly any type of data that you can get, as imperfect as it may be, to try to build a segmentation model for your organization that is unified across the company. Uh, now you can start talking about the customer in a consistent way between marketing teams, growth teams, product teams, engineering teams. Um, it's the most seminal sort of central way to, I, I believe, convene disparate functions into a single conversation. And then from there you can glean your insights, whether it's attitudinal insights, behavioral insights, purchase insights, um, and then use that to make better decisions. But I've always found that when you strip it all away, if you can get a common language around a customer, a unified view, it's a great starting point. I was going to just ask, so if you guys, like obviously there's so many marketing strategies out there, you can use all the data in the world, but sometimes you just kind of get it wrong, right? There's going to yeah. be that dissonance. How do you kind of mitigate that situation and make sure that you retain your client base or your consumer base, your audience, like, so that they're not alienated. You want to keep them, but you've made an error. Yeah. What do you do? I've got plenty of mistakes that we've made. <laughs> I'm happy to well, I, and I think the root of it, because I've seen this with Atlassian's marketing, and I know it's true to ours, is that you own up to it and you're authentic about exactly. it. Exactly. 
Um, and so there, we had something really interesting happen to us that was more to do with our recruitment marketing this year. And we um, quickly reacted and, you know, it was timely. We, we were very thoughtful about it. But you just put the message out into the right networks and inform the right people. And you are clear. You don't try to dance around anything. And that, I think, can go a really long way. And, and just give people the, the, the right actions, the next steps that they need. And you, you don't try to confuse anybody with yeah. all this, like, smoke and mirrors. And don't worry about this. <laughs> yeah, honesty, right? Mm -hmm. And I find the stakes are even higher in today's world with GDPR, uh, CCPA compliance requirements, privacy requirements, where there is a lot of sensitivity uh, around consent and how marketers really have a completely different level of responsibility to be sensitive to customer preferences more so than ever before. And so, you know, when the stakes are higher, that means one, hopefully you have governance in place and, and principles in place to treat that data with a lot of care. Uh, but also when you do make a mistake, which inevitably happens, quickly apologize and take responsibility and ownership for that. You know, I have a funny story from years ago at eBay. We kind of had the opposite problem. We had an email that would go out every single day for a business we built called Daily Deals. And, you know, who wants to get an email every single day, right? But uh, we had a few days where that send was broken. We had a problem in, in sort of the data and the emails didn't go out. We got a massive number of complaints from customers who were not getting their Daily Deals email. It's the first time in my career that I got inbound complaints for somebody <laughs> not receiving marketing messages and emails. And I was people like- People love deals. People love deals. And what was happening is that if they missed the email, they would miss the deal, right? So we knew our customer, there was a very specific market this was going to, and they were dynamically rendered. So when you'd open it, it would reflect the latest inventory that was on the marketplace. So they were like really well-crafted emails that would show you exactly what's available now. Uh, and so we looked at that and we're like, okay, first of all, we got something right, and we had optimized those emails over a long time. So problems and mistakes come in many different forms, uh, and we quickly fixed that, and it was one of the most successful marketing programs we've ever had because we got the alignment between the target customer, the segment that we had, uh, the product mix, and then the marketing channel. So would both of you agree that, you know, we're talking about how do you, how do you stand out, and what we've really spent most of this time talking about is like, well, how do you go deep and how do you really know yeah. the customer? Like yeah. understand their pain really, really clearly, understand what they want next, and also understand that like emotionally where they need to be at, where can we try to help them be at is kind of how you break through. Mm. Yeah. Think about a, of how we make friendships too. You know, I forced you guys to go get lunch with me today because I was like, <laughs> I can't just do small talk banter right in front of the stage and pretend like I know you. I need, I need that chance to get a little deeper and learn a little bit, that way it feels more authentic. And I think there's something to be spoken about how that works for your marketing too. I feel like we had a great lunch. We did have a good Delicious. lunch. It was a good lunch. Thank lobster, you for organizing. Lobster yeah. rolls? Got, lobster got rolls. To, got yeah. to know each other really well. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you know, look, I love your metaphor for friendships. Um, I have a simple mental model for all things we do in marketing, which is when it comes to customers, uh, know them, show them you know them, and then show them you care. And so, any of us can look at the combination of all the levers that we pull uh, within our organizations to drive growth, map it to one of those three categories. And there's probably another category where it's just like, oh, I don't know where this fits, right? Um, and see how much of your customer engagement, whether it's for prospects or existing customers, falls in one of those three categories. What I tend to find is as marketers, we're really good at the first one, which is to know them, right? We've captured the data, we have the information. Yeah. 
Um, but we're often, we have gaps in showing them we know them, right? The personalization, the human side of this. And be really honest with yourselves. Or like, how precisely, are, how effective are you at each of these three? And then where we're lacking the most generally is the third, which is surprise and delight me for things that I would have never expected from you, but bring me a lot of joy. And I find that that's actually uh, the category that drives the most amount of retention, engagement, and brand love. That's awesome. Bring uh, me joy. Bring you joy. It's all about the joy. Let's bring you joy. Um, Daily deals. <laughs> Robert and Hannah, thank you both so much for being on Talking Too Loud. Put it together. Thank you. This is so funny because we can't hear you clapping. That's okay. Oh, I I like can it. Hear I, it looks like they're clapping. <laughs> they're I can clapping. hear it. We can see it. We can see it. <laughs> Where can people learn more from each of you? Where can they connect with you online? Oh, I'm at uh, on Twitter at, at Chetwani, and then uh, you just look up Robert Chetwani on LinkedIn. Uh, would welcome uh, any any conversations. Uh, love connecting with with new folks. Awesome. You can find me on uh, Twitter at hshane. That's my Instagram as well. I think I'm on Instagram way more these okay. days. Okay, Instagram, yeah. Instagram. Yeah, or we could find you in Paris. In Paris. In Paris. Let's just Let's find her in Paris. Oh, We're going. And if you like the show, you can check us out at wistia.com. Or you can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. Email us at ttailpod at wistia.com if you have ideas for guests or feedback or anything. And then wistia is at booth 54 if you want some free swag. Thank you so much, everybody. You're a great audience. Thank you. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.